0: Today's episode of Animal Spirits is sponsored by Navaplan by InvestCloud. Built on the most precise calculation engine in the financial planning market, Navaplan empowers advisors to cater their services to any client, from simple goals based assessments to advanced cash flow planning analysis. To see how Navaplan helps model some of the concepts and strategies discussed on this episode, visit AdvicentSolutions.com. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson
1: as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching.
0: Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
2: Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Once again, we have unloaded the inbox, and we're going to do a listener mailbag. It's been a while. Want to do it? Do I want to? Let's do it.
0: Nah, never mind. Let's do something else. <laughs> All
2: right. I like this one. Myself and my wife are both Midwestern elites, like Ben, thirty-two and thirty-three years old. In twenty twenty-one, we increased our income substantially to around two hundred forty thousand dollars a year, and have around two hundred fifty k in non-retirement investment accounts, and both max out our four hundred one k and HSA. Nice. No children, don't plan on having children, only debt is a mortgage and live on less than 50% of our income and invest the rest. Worked hard, put ourselves on a path to financial independence. One major goal is to have portfolio producing income that would cover our baseline financial needs so we can choose how much we want to work from age 45 on. My best guess is we should have around $2.5 million in our non-retirement accounts by then if we work full time. What is the best way to set up an income producing portfolio using money that isn't necessarily tied to retirement? Spend around 60 a year and 15 of that is mortgage, which will be gone in 14 years.
0: The first thing that I thought of when I read this question was rental property.
2: Well, I have a problem with this question in some ways. I think too many people- I don't like the premise. I don't like the premise. (laughs) Well, here's my problem. Too many people in retirement think they have to have income instead of thinking through total returns. You can always create your own dividends by selling. So the thing is, if you're going to have money in taxable non-retirement accounts, do you really have to change your investment strategy right away just because- you think income is better than taking away from the principal? I don't think so.
0: Yeah, but maybe you're discounting like mental accounting.
2: That's probably part of it. So yeah, you're right. Would it be rental income? But at that point, you're changing. You'd have to have a pretty large allocation to something to make it worthwhile to cover all your needs. That's true. Right? Mm-hmm. What are you eating right now?
0: Multiple rental incomes.
2: Come on, there's, there's no eating on a podcast. That's like <laughs> rule number one. <laughs> Get out of here with that. <laughs> I'm not eating.
0: I'm chewing it out to it. I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> so I think as long as you have your number and you figure out how much you can safely withdraw and be okay with that, that's the main thing. Not like, can we have dividend producing assets and REITs that pay income and real estate and all this stuff? If you're investing in that stuff already, that's great. But do you need to change your whole investment guidelines and come up with income, especially in a world that is really low rate at the moment?
0: I think That's a very astute observation.
2: That's what I'm saying. So I think figure out the investing first and then figure out whether you take it from income or principal. It's okay to take from principal. There's not going to be the end of the world if you do.
0: Well, this person said they're trying to retire early and live off this nest egg, but point taken. The next question actually dovetails nicely with this one. My wife would like to reduce her work schedule in the coming years to spend more time with the kids. I'm pondering allocating a pool of our savings into income-focused investments that could in effect offset our mortgage of $1,000 a month which is second largest monthly expense to the $1,700 daycare. So I've researched some ETF products like NUSI and QYLD that use covered call strategies to generate option income distributed monthly as a tool to accomplish this. By the way, obviously none of this is investment advice. See the disclaimers, et cetera, et cetera. All right, questions. What are the risks in these products? I understand they're selling off upside to capture the option premium income. Anything to be cautious about? Thoughts on the strategy in general given our age? Ben mentioned Asset Liability Matching Concept. So this shocked me, Ben. QYLD, which is, I think that's Global X, it's a NASDAQ 100 Covered Call ETF, which we've gotten emails about this product over the years. It generates like a big, big, big juicy dividend. And the dividend comes from, and it's not a dividend, but you know what I mean, distribution, that comes from selling covered calls. So this person asked about the risks in a strategy like this, well, there's two main ones as i see it maybe ben you'll have some more number one is if i'm going to invest in an equity portfolio i want all the upside if i'm going to get a lot of the downside give me all the upside and qyld or any covered cost strategy by definition it truncates the upside but on the downside it barely cushions the downside
2: Yeah, that's the idea. You're getting equity-like returns with lower volatility, but it doesn't lower that much.
0: But it's not lower volatility. It's like a slightly lower drawdown. So now, that being said, even if this is mathematically not like a, quote, optimal strategy, clearly the proof is in the pudding. It's got $6 billion in assets. So people like being fooled into like return of principle strategies. And I'm kind of okay with that.
2: Yeah, you're right. It's the mental accounting thing, the psychology behind it. I talked to Bill Sweet about this. Here's his thing that he gave me on this in terms of, because I thought it from the tax perspective side of things.
0: Consult with your accountant.
2: Right. But his whole thing was, the great thing about creating your own dividends in a portfolio strategy is that you can have more control over the taxes and where they're coming from and when. Whereas if you're getting an income that's paid out regularly, again, psychologically, that might be easier for you, but you don't control the taxes on that as much. Those are set in stone, basically.
0: But that can actually be a benefit. Because we're thinking in finance brains, people that do this professionally, most people or a lot of people don't necessarily have the discipline, don't want the discipline to be able to have to manufacture their own dividend. So even if it's like a quote, again, I'm using suboptimal and air quotes here, the fact that it's automated is a benefit.
2: Right. I think if someone else is doing it for you, that's the idea. That makes sense to me that if you'd rather just have someone else take that off your hands and do it for you, right? You're creating your own like investment annuity, basically.
0: In conclusion, what you're getting is income. You're giving up his upside and you're, again, taking almost all of the volatility downside. So if that sounds good to you, then that's your decision.
2: Not bad. Okay. Let's do a crypto one. My question relates to Bitcoin. I have a personal friend who over the last six months has levered up and is incredibly bullish on BTC. When I follow up and ask questions on the Outlook, he says, dude, BTC is at 100K by the end of 2022. <laughs> when did this email come in? <laughs> that's a good point. It's probably a while. Probably at the peak. My opinion, right or wrong, is that so much of the excitement behind BTC is not in the technology or DeFi itself, but the crazy wealth stories we're all hearing and reading about. It's the guy who turned 10,000 of Bitcoin five years ago and has 5 million or whatever. I know you guys have talked a little about these urban legends in the crypto space. Do you think this excitement will subside or return slow?
0: Oh, duh. It already has.
2: I actually calculated this. So if you took the last 10 years worth of Bitcoin returns and put them forward to the next 10 years from current levels, it would take it from, what is it now? Almost a little below 50K. Trillion? No, it would take it to like almost 5 million.
0: I think that, yeah, from this person's point of view, a lot of the excitement, certainly in the public sphere, is price. That's it, period. End of story. Everybody's getting hilarious, rich, and you're not. But as we've spoken about multiple times, the amount of funding in the space and the reason why the VCs are excited, yeah, of course, it's price returns and the potential for future returns, but it's the restructuring of the current financial system. And maybe that's too ambitious. And maybe we don't get there. Maybe we don't even come close. But you have to separate the excitement from what you're seeing from your friends Versus the excitement that the professionals are engaging in. And there's definitely a lot of overlap, but there is a lot of exciting, interesting products that are being built beyond just the speculation.
2: But yes, yeah, so the people that are bragging to you about their gains, those are the ones that just they care about price and that's it. And they'll probably move on to something else if crypto does have some muted. So right now, I guess Bitcoin is up 50% on the year because I think it started the year at 30. Now it's at 45-ish. So it's kind of funny that that seems like it's a muted return. It's at 50%. <laughs> I think. By the way, that was-
0: my wife has a bone to pick with you. With me? With you. Okay. Well, she doesn't know it's with you.
2: Because of the third web?
0: No, the car wash. She just texted me, we just went to the car wash and I got the basic level cleaning because you said they're all the same, but they are all caps, not all the same. My wife is not an all caps person. She said, I should have gotten the gold level like I usually do.
2: I'm sorry, Robin. She's like one of these income producing asset people that it's all psychology to her. How does she know it's different? Remember, I'm
0: going to find out when I get home.
2: We got an email from a guy who owns a car wash about a month ago. And he said, you're right. It's a scam. He said, the higher end washes are our biggest margin project by far.
0: No ki- I don't remember that email. That was from an insider?
2: Yes. He said he owns a car wash. And said well, that- then
0: I stand by you. I stand by you, Ben.
2: Thank you. All right. Here's a good one. Sorry. I'm going to tell my
0: wife. Sorry, Bob, but I stand with Ben.
2: <laughs> <It's, yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Got to follow the data. All right. This is a good real estate one I thought for you. So looking to move back to New York area after being abroad for 10 years in a place Ben has mentioned regularly, Toronto. He used abroad in quotes here, obviously. He's in Canada. Paid off home in Toronto, witnessed decent appreciation. He says, yay, but I don't understand it. My spouse and I have seriously tossed around the idea of moving to Manhattan for a few years, they don't have kids, before permanently settling outside the city within a roughly 30-minute commuting distance. In a unique market like Manhattan, does the standard rule of owning at least seven years apply? Wouldn't the odds be greater in that two to three-year timeline of having a Manhattan property that would appreciate steadily, therefore a future down payment would be better used to purchase a home versus renting and going out? Too long didn't read. Manhattan real estate is a safer buy than a savings account to park a large chunk of cash. Mm. This is essentially what you did, right? You lived in Brooklyn for two to three years.
0: Yes. I wrote all about this. And I think it was cheaper to buy, but maybe not buy as much as I thought. Because I was only there for like three years I don't know what this person's time horizon is. So I feel like that's maybe-ish break even. So it's likely, depending on various factors, it's likely to be cheaper to buy than to rent.
2: But it's probably going to be close because of the frictions involved. The closing yes. costs, as you told me, are way higher in New York. Ridiculous.
0: And if something goes wrong, like you don't have a big margin forever. So if something goes wrong and you're on the hook for a big repair, it's not maybe as much of a no-brainer as you would think.
2: So the idea is that early on, if you only own a home for a few years, most of your mortgage is going toward interest payments then you also have closing costs and realtor fees and all this stuff it can be a lot so yeah you're right it may but not, not be a no brainer
0: like, what's it in the beginning is it like 40%
2: i've calculated this before it's probably 30 yeah, to 40 it 30, it's okay. a decently high amount it's a lot it's a lot yeah it's not a no brainer i would say it's probably pretty close i suppose you'd want to use that money for a down payment if otherwise you could turn it into a rental if you're okay doing that also
0: let's not forget about like the potential headaches of buying and selling cuz you've got to find the place And then you've got to turn around in two to three years, if that's what your time horizon is, and sell it. Maybe if you could afford it, it actually is better psychologically to rent because it frees you up to focus your mental energy on other things. But your decision, obviously.
2: Here's one that just came in.
0: Hot off the presses.
2: Big saver with an index fund portfolio that's 70-30. I feel like, so we listen to the Ryan Rossello life advice sometimes, and he has people come in giving their height and weight. (laughs) I think people should come to us giving us their asset allocation, <laughs>
0: right? Big saver, eighty twenty, no growth stocks.
2: All right. Wondering if you have any thoughts on putting some of my bond allocation into I-bonds, a series of I-bonds. With a spouse and two kids, I could allocate 40K of a current $600 bond index fund allocation between 2021 and 2022 to I-bonds yielding 7%. Pros and cons, worth the administrative hassle. These things are getting a lot of publicity. People are paying attention to this stuff.
0: Is that chart in the doc for next week? I can't remember. I just saw a chart of the amount of money going into these. Oh, you wrote about this.
2: We talked about it. So there's a ton of money going into them.
0: I love your idea, by the way. Why don't you rehash your idea for people that missed last week?
2: Yeah. My idea is the government can say, we understand people are upset with us about the high inflation. We're going to take the cap away on these things so you can invest because these things reset with the inflation rate. The thing is they reset every six months. So that 7% annualized is for six months. If by then inflation is lower... This rate could be lower. Of course, if inflation stays high, that rate will remain high. I think if someone like this, who is a big saver, who's thinking about this being worth it, if they are a DIY person and knows how to do this stuff, it's not that much. Fine. Of a, no, I'm saying it's not that much of a hassle to do it. So, if you're a person who's thinking this far and got that far, I mean, why not? Give it now, my shot. point is
0: what I said. They're probably fine. If you are asking this sort of question, just generally speaking, not only are you probably fine, you're probably better than fine. You're probably like in the 99th percentile of fine.
2: Yes. So if you want to chase yield a little bit and something like this. Now, does it make sense to change your allocation to bonds every six months? If the yield comes down, then you go looking for something else and something else. I mean, that probably is a bit too much.
0: But also, this isn't a chasing yield because this is like when you're chasing yield, there's all sorts of things that can go wrong. This is like literally like picking up yield.
2: Yes. You know, this is safe. This is US government bonds because that's the hole that's missing right now is Well, you know, it's yield safe. And
0: you're going to get your money back, but it's not safe from inflation. Because if this is yielding 7%, and actual inflation is running at 17%, which we all know it is, then do the math.
2: Okay. This isn't safe from shadow stats, fake inflation. But <laughs> if inflation stays high, the rates on this will stay high. Even if it goes back to 4 or 5% for a while, you'll still get... Again, this resets every six months. If you're a financially sound person who knows what they're doing and can handle opening new accounts, sure, go for it. I think this makes sense. Okay. With higher inflation and investors planning for multiple rate hikes... That's consensus. Michael's against consensus. Wait, before I get into the rest of this, what is your rate hike prediction? Because I feel like you have to have one if you said Josh is wrong for next year.
0: Well, consensus is three.
2: You think less than that?
0: I'm like at one and a half. Okay. I think they're going to do the rate hike, they're going to announce a second rate hike, and they're going to back off.
2: So this person says they have a contrarian view that this huge swing in value won't last long because they think inflation settles down, and they're not convinced that the Fed will actually raise rates as many times. Did you write this? <laughs> There are you. Team Michael here. I recently started buying stocks like Square, CrowdStrike, Shopify, NVIDIA, SoFi, and Adobe, since most of these stocks are down significantly from their highs. I just wanted to ask your opinion on my thinking, and even if my outlook is wrong next year, to think these types of stocks stay out of favor for long. So the, the idea is this person thinks inflation is overblown and that a lot of these growth stocks have sold off because of inflation is now a good time to buy them, assuming that we go from inflation to much lower inflation.
0: What did this email come in? I'm guessing these stocks are way lower since the SEMA came in. Not to rub it in.
2: That's possible.
0: But it's possible that this person is right. Is there an overreaction to actual inflation, to potential interest rate increases? Yeah, there might be. But guess what? Being a contrarian is hard for this very reason, is that most of the time, it's not that the crowd is always right, obviously. It's just that trying to bet against the trend that's already in place, it's difficult.
2: Yes. And- trying to add a macro factor into it. Whereas, I mean, I guess it makes sense if inflation stays high, value should probably do better in growth. It should. But will it for sure? We don't know that. That seems to make sense in theory, but we just don't know. So I think trying to add a macro element in there to time this stuff is difficult. If you want to own these stocks to the long term, after they've fallen 30 or 40%, you probably feel a little bit better out of it just starting a position.
0: There's two schools of thought, in my opinion, for being a contrarian. You either need to start small or big, but keep your opinion on a short leash. You go and saying like, all right, the market thinks X, I'm going to take the other side, but chances are the market's right and I'm wrong. And therefore I'm going to keep this on a tight leash, meaning I'm only going to risk half of my portfolio, or I'm only going to risk 6% on this particular position, whatever it is. Or again, you start small and you say, I'm going to take a long time horizon on this, meaning it's probably not the bottom but I think that in two to three years, I'm going to be proven right. I think you have to do one or the other. Otherwise you're flailing.
2: Plus the idea that you're going to catch a stock that's falling 30 or 40% exactly when it bottoms.
0: Yeah. It's not going to stop going down just because you bought it.
2: Unfortunately, assume that it won't and that maybe you can leg into a position like that. But I think the inflation stuff is going to be hard. And I don't know, frankly, if inflation stays high, value stocks probably should continue to outperform. That would make sense to me.
0: You're a regional banks guy? (laughs)
2: <laughs> is that what's gonna outperform? You Inflation is high. The three time levered version. All right. Wife and I, 29 and 32, have been very debt averse. They have no debt. With rates as low as they are, we've been talking about taking out a mortgage on our house. So they have the house paid off at 29 and 32. That's pretty good. Purchased our house for 175 with cash. Okay, so we didn't have to pay the mortgage off. They just purchased it with cash. Could easily get 140K for it of equity if we wanted. So that's 80% of it. Could currently get a 30 year fixed at 2.875. Assuming we choose to do this, would you have any recommendations for how to allocate the funds? They're saying VOO, no. VTI, VXUS, Stackard buffer ETFs. Even with the mortgage, we would still fund our 401ks, Roth IRAs, HSAs, and 529s. Basically, borrowing against the house to invest. What should we do?
0: There's nothing wrong with smart leverage. And I feel like this person is thinking about this intelligently. Given rates, it makes sense if your personal balance sheet is in good order. I understand the psychological benefit of not having a mortgage. People love that. But I also understand, hey, I've got debt equity sitting here earning zero, less than zero, going down after inflation, and I want to put that money to work. I totally get that. So if you could do that in a responsible way, more power to you.
2: I guess this, like, what's your current allocation? What is your current form of investment?
0: Mine personally, I'm bored apes and...
2: <laughs> Only blue chips, obviously. But I'm saying, does it make sense to change the way you invest because this is borrowed money? That's what I'm asking.
0: Oh, Yes. Yes, it could. I mean, if you're speculating like a maniac with your taxable account, you're going to behave differently with borrowed money. At least you better.
2: Potentially. Yeah. I just think if this is a debt-averse couple and they're saving, they pay with houses and cash.
0: So the question is if they already have a household allocation to stocks, to bonds, to whatever.
2: What's your allocation right now? That would be the starting point is how do we currently allocate and does that make sense? And can we beat this hurdle rate of, let's say 2% after you take away the tax breaks? Well, I guess there won't be tax rates here because they're borrowing against it and not fixed it for house. Okay. It's still less than 3% of a hurdle rate. So obviously you have to- No, it's going to be a little
0: bit more than that because it's, well, at least in New York, there's all sorts of fees involved in borrowing money, but whatever.
2: I would start with your current allocation and see what you think about that and see if that could get you some idea of what you should put it in. But asking us for a specific ETF or something, that's going to be hard to do without knowing your current allocation.
0: Boom. Just flying
2: through. I own Verizon and the graph looks horrible. It's constantly falling further and further off a cliff. I know I shouldn't be married to a position, but I like the dividend and don't want to sell at a loss. It's hard for me to deal with. I have a couple dozen very successful stocks picks, and this one is the humongous laggard that I just don't know how to handle. What do you guys do if you have a position that's turned out to be a bad pick?
0: This is the hard one. This is a hard question. What do you do with losers?
2: So wait, can you verify that this is ugly? Oh, it's terrible. Like it, it's terrible. That's your thing. Like you look at a chart and you go, oh, this thing is ugly.
0: It had a ferocious bounce because staples are starting to do well, or staples have been doing well, certainly relative to the discretionary because of the flight to safety. But this is the difference between price and total return price. And with something like this, if a stock is getting killed, it doesn't really help you. So for example, over the last three years, oof.
2: By the way, this is another stock that is still below nineteen ninety nine levels on a price basis.
0: Wow! So over the last three years, Verizon's down five percent, with dividends it's up eight percent. So a lot better, but the S and P's up ninety one percent. So not good. So you look at Verizon, you say, "What is this thing yielding?" I'm guessing four and a half percent. Doesn't matter, four point eight percent. Not bad. But buying something for the yield is like almost never the answer if. You're doing it in an isolated way. If you have a dividend strategy where you're buying a basket of dividend stocks or dividend growth stocks or whatever, fine, that's one thing. But to just pick stocks on a one off basis because of the dividend yield, it's no way to invest.
2: I do think that idea of I don't wanna sell at a loss, I just wanna make my money back, that is one of the harder things to overcome when buying individual stocks.
0: That rules everything.
2: The break even. If I can just, that explains like a lot of your technical analysis stuff. Totally. The support and resistance, all that stuff.
0: That's where supply and demand comes into play. So put it this way. If you bought Verizon, you're down 30% in your purchase. Are you selling? I'm not. It's Verizon. That's what you say to yourself. You say, it's Verizon. It's not going anywhere. I'm getting paid to wait. The key is don't put yourself in those positions. So if you're going to speculate with individual names, you got to have, I think, some sort of exit strategy before you enter.
2: But this is the whole thing of dividend stocks is, yeah, but I'm being paid to wait. I think it's easier to do this and hold on to these than it is like a a speculative name that's down 70% or something.
0: Well, how about this? You need to have a plan. I said you need to have an exit strategy. You need to have a strategy. In other words, do a pre-mortem. What is my game plan if this falls 30%? Which by the way, any stock can fall 30%. What do I do if this stock falls 30%? I feel like you need to have that discussion with yourself ahead of time.
2: Alternatively, the other game plan is on a relative basis. If the market's up 100% and my stock is only up my dividend, am I going to be okay with that? Am I viewing this stock correctly, that I'm just taking it for the 4 or 5% dividend every year and hopefully price appreciation comes? Or do I want this to keep up with the market? I think that is the expectation you have to set with yourself. All right. Looking to protect a portion of my capital against inflation in 2022, you and everyone else, I've already purchased the max limit of I bonds. I learned about these in animal spirits. Thank you so much. Even got my 80-year-old parents on the action. See, the government owes us some money here. We should be getting a kickback for these I bonds. Have some cash laying around, want a safe inflation hedge. I came across tips. What are your thoughts? Specifically, VTIP and STIP, which both seem to have relatively high yields. These are two ETFs. Since they both are shorter-term vehicles, they Relatively be-
0: high yields. It's negative real yields. Bigly negative.
2: Well, I guess they're looking at them on an after-inflation basis. And by well, I mean 4 to 5% per year total return. Would rates be rising, say the Fed funds rate of 1% by the end of 22, negatively impact these ETFs, or would that be offset by the benefit of inflation?
0: We get this question a lot. And I think it's a common misunderstanding that the inflation expectations are already embedded in the price of TIPS. So if they're pricing at 5% inflation, you get 5% inflation, it's already priced in. It's unexpected inflation that TIPS protect you from.
2: These have done okay these years. So TIP is the... They did
0: way better than regular bonds, no?
2: Yeah. So the TIP bond is up almost 5% on the year. What's the ag? Aggregate bonds. Okay. So...
0: Down 2%.
2: Yeah. So aggregate bonds are down between 1% and 2%. Tips are up 5% of the year. That's big. They've done well this year protecting you against that. But you're right. Whatever is sort of baked in is what you're going to get. And then that's going to be the unexpected inflation piece is going to help. If we still have inflation that's higher, even with the negative nominal yields that you get in those right now, it's going to be offset by the higher inflation if it persists.
0: How much money has been lost looking to hedge inflation?
2: <laughs> Probably more so going forward than it has in the past. It's still new. Like People don't know how to we haven't had to deal with this for 30 years. What's the traditional inflation hedge? It's gold. Yes. Is
0: gold down worse than bonds this year?
2: But let's it? say... It's probably pretty close, but let's say... If
0: gold is down more than bonds in the highest inflationary year since the 1970s, shouldn't that tell you all you need to know about trying to hedge against inflation? Inflation is a beast.
2: Gold is now down 6% on the year. So yeah, by far, it's up underperforming.
0: All right, there you go.
2: Okay, so here's the thing though. Like, If you were given this information ahead of time, like what was going to happen this year, inflation would have been higher. Don't you think the easier hedge at the beginning of the year would have said short treasuries instead of going long gold? Gold, I mean, kind of marches to its own beat at sometimes, but I think that's the even bigger head scratcher is the fact that if you would have known inflation was coming- you Yeah, would have
0: said, short bonds, buy gold.
2: But I think short bonds would have been the easier prediction and it still didn't come true is what I'm saying. that That's how crazy this year has been that it's just broken brains and textbooks alike.
0: We're rejoined today by Tony Steak, a.k.a. Stick or Anthony Stitch. Call him whatever you want. <laughs> Tony, thank you for coming back on today.
1: Thank you for having me, guys. I'm super excited to be here in a holiday week. I was actually supposed to be off, but I'm here for you too.
0: Oh, thank you. Ben, you're
1: why welcome. don't we get it started?
2: We wanted to ask you this because you're a college planning expert <laughs> <laughs> Children, children's investments account. This person says they're planning and setting aside money for their children and invested in the market. They're unsure what is a better account type, an UTMA or a regular custodian brokerage account. I actually had a similar conversation about this in the last week, so I'm curious to hear what you have to say about this. They've been reading that assets in an UTMA can have a negative effect when it comes to college financial aid, but there seems to be some good tax benefits to it. They've come across some online forum and doing some research. They say current tax rules allow a child to accrue up to $2,000 in annual income tax-free. That amount of gain can be strategically locked in every year by selling shares to annulate a profit and immediately repurchasing them. Um, tax gain harvesting. Is that a thing? So they're asking, what do you think between a children's custody account or an upma account? I got to say, I'm more aware of 529s than upma So maybe you can school us here, Tony, since you're the children investment account expert. <laughs> yeah.
1: I just love how these questions pop up and then you have me on as the guest to talk about <laughs> them because ever since my 529 comments, I have... Created a significant fan base.
0: People don't forget.
1: Yeah, people will never forget. In fact, that haunts me to this day. I'll be on Twitter and all of a sudden someone will be a drive-by 529 comment <laughs> on my, my account, which I'll immediately send to you two. Okay, well, first of all, I'm impressed about the amount of research this individual's done on Utmas compared to a brokerage account, and then of course the 529. Here's what I'm going to say on this topic because this is very sensitive. And obviously, we talk all the time about hiring a financial advisor, but this is what I would recommend doing in this particular situation is creating a matrix. It is creating a matrix of the different options. If that's an UTMA, that's a 529, or if that's a single brokerage account, because there's a lot of complexity here around gifting, around the tax benefits, and in particular about this case, when they're referencing the income tax benefits, because the trick about these kind of investment vehicles is that the child is taxed as if they have an income and because they don't really have an income, there's that tax benefit. So what I would encourage someone to do is sit down with a yellow pad of paper and list those out and then put them in a matrix. The beautiful part of UTMA, it's slightly different, is it was kind of a, I don't know if you know this, but it actually started, as the UGMA the UGMA and it kind of changed in this UTMA and the idea was that there was going to be the ability to gift a certain amount of money to an individual tax free to avoid the yeah, taxes to a certain amount it
2: stands for Uniform Transfer to Minors Act
1: yes but and it right? used to be the uniform i think it's called like the gift to minors act and that was really the creation of i think at the time was that now that we see it it's going to be $16,000 this coming year where you can give tax free to someone up to $16,000 a year, which raises the point. If you create this matrix and you review, see it's complicated because think about it. If you have grandparents involved, if you have yourself involved, because then also if you open up a 529 versus an UTMA, how does that money go in? Is it giftable or not? And then of course, income tax ramifications. So I would lay out that matrix. I would kind of write down the pros and cons around the flexibility of the investment vehicle, the tax benefits of the investment vehicle, and the gifting applicability of those vehicles. And then add in the state versus federal, because there is some complexities with each state as how they handle an UTMA or a 529. So Maybe I'm not answering the question because I'm terrified of Michael Bannock's Twitter army, <laughs> but I would lay it down in a
0: matrix. No, it's complicated.
2: That's the problem with this. It is, it is so complicated. And I've talked about this in the past. I wish you could easily open a Roth IRA in your child's name and start funding it from the time they were born to give them some. Obviously, I guess the problem is they don't want rich parents to be getting tax benefits and giving to their kids somehow. I kind of understand that, but it is too bad that it's so complicated to do this. Oh,
0: that reminds me. We got to get this company on the show. Tony, you ever hear of Get Early Bird? I have not, actually. It says, invest in the children you love. Introducing the simplest way for parents, family, and friends to collectively invest in a child's financial future. GetEarlyBird.io. I saw them in the journal recently and want to talk to them. Anyway.
2: This person has already done the research, obviously. And if you're really willing to go that far, it probably makes sense. For other people, I think it's how much work you really want to do on this stuff and how much do you just want to make it easy?
1: Absolutely. And that's the funny part about like the 529 is like, it is a very easy way to open up an account. It's very easy, but the complexities begin with, again, if the grandparents open up the account, if the child goes through college education too fast, if they go to a state-sponsored school that's less expensive, there is just complexities to these decisions, but the fact that this person's looking at an UTMA, that's a good first step. But again, that's why I think you perform the exercise in the matrix because that way you kind of look at the pros and cons of each one of these and you can make an educated decision based on laying that all out.
0: All right. Next question. How do you know if you have a good or a bad financial advisor? (laughs) Obviously having returns that are consistently above the market averages would indicate a good advisor. However, how far below market averages would you allow for before questioning if one to change advisors? Tony, turn it over to you.
1: This is a tough one. And this is also, I think probably the best question I've answered so far or had the opportunity to answer so far on your podcast, because I love that they're thinking about this. Now, certainly returns is extremely valuable and kind of really the measurement that you should apply to all your advisors. But I want to get a bit deeper on this topic and more philosophical to a point where, and this is not a hot take. But like the reality is, is that an advisor needs to understand you empathetically speaking. If you have a spouse or a partner or in your different situation, I think they need to understand you. So when I picked out my advisor, I explained very explicitly that I want to live life now. Really the concept was like, I want to look at returns in a different way, living life now. I mean, in fact, I was in a panel not too long ago about how millennials are assessing how to pick an advisor because everyone has a different, how'd you say it? A Gold? thought on money, right? And goal. Is the retirement goal first? Is it living life now first, et cetera? Now, if you want to get down to the brass tax, what is the 8%? It's the kind of like barometric pressure gauge, 8%. If you're doing better than that with an advisor, fantastic. If you're doing less than that, maybe you should audit or review that. But I would put the onus on the investor a bit as well. If there's poorly performing assets or they're not doing as well, you need to drill into that further. Did you put this advisor in a position where they're investing heavily in something that you suggested, a singular equity or whatever the case is? Or is it the fact that the advisor is negligent? And quite frankly, I would look actually more around transactions, the amount of transactions that occur on a quarterly basis. I look at the investment vehicles and understand what they're kind of putting their money in. And then I would look at that holistically. So like, what's another way to review an advisor? Are they a CFP? Are they a CFA? Are they a broker? There's a variety of, again, like this matrix or this rubric of making that decision that would change that. But 8% is kind of that number that you kind of look at, because that's pretty much the performance of the market on average, and to see if they're higher or lower than that. But I would drill further into the empathy around the advisor, whether or not they're understanding what you want to get out of the relationship.
2: It also is does the advisor do what they said they're going to do? Because you can say anything you want in the lead-up meetings when you have prospects, and you can promise, and it's kind of like, trust us, we got this. That's like the old way of thinking. Now, of course, you can look stuff up. So figuring out if you're doing better or worse than the market or what the advisor said, like this is your target portfolio. If we do much worse than this allocation we set up for you, then obviously, yeah, you should come to us and understand why. But I think it's, did the advisor offer more than they're actually giving? Or are they doing what they told me that they were going to do?
1: Yeah, which is exactly the case. That's what I meant by the due diligence. If they put you in, I hate saying TDF or like a target date fund, but if they dropped you in this target date fund based on the numbers you provided, the retirement goal, your age, your income, et cetera, et cetera, and those are underperforming, is that the advisor's fault or the fact that the vehicle they've picked was defined in advance by you? The investor,
0: or if the investor says you have to outperform, or I'm going to fire you, and then the advisor is flailing, turning the portfolio, trying to beat the market, and loses. Like obviously, the advisor has some responsibility in that, but so does the investor that hired the advisor and gave them those directions.
2: You could outperform for three or four years and do wonderfully, but if it's because you're swinging for the fences every time and you got lucky, eventually that's going to turn around. So you have to understand what your advisor's doing for you. I think, like especially for people who are busy, it makes sense to outsource in a lot of ways because. People just don't have as much time and energy to look into this stuff as much as we do or care about it as much as we do. That makes sense, but you still have to understand what you're investing in and why.
0: I would also say, I hate the phrase full market cycle, but it's hard to judge performance if the market's doing nothing but going straight up. I think parts of the value add from an advisor, is not that they're going to hold your hand and tell you not to sell. There's a lot more to it than that. But how did you feel? How did you react in a bad market? Were you able to sleep at night? Were you not checking your portfolio? Did you have trust and faith that the advisor was going to get you to your destination and do what they said they were going to do. Those are all the things that are hard to quantify, but that are really material in my opinion.
1: You make a good point though, especially because we're in such a wild market nowadays. I don't think anyone's really accustomed to what's going to happen. If there is a market downturn a correction, whatever you want to call it, that's where the rubber hits the road. But to your point, Ben, I just want to say this, the advisor's gamma or the advisor's alpha, whatever you want to call it, has been proven repeatedly over self-directed. It's been proven repeatedly again and again by many different great research firms, Vanguard, one of which, that's demonstrated the value of the advisor. So even if there is a blip on the radar or a couple of years of less than ideal returns, you need to look again holistically at the picture of what the advisor is gonna offer you over time. But good on this person regardless to kind of be putting their finger in the wind and making sure they're going in the right direction. But you need to look introspectively at what you told the advisor, what you've asked the advisor to do and making sure they've followed through with that. Because if they have, Perhaps it's not the advisor's fault necessarily.
0: It has to be more than returns though. It just has to be because anybody, any money manager, whether it's an advisor or a professional or Buffett or whatever, like they're going to go through periods where the market makes them look foolish. And if your only gauge for determining success or failure is the performance, you're going to fire them, hire them at the exact wrong time. You have to put it into context of why did you hire them? Like it has to be more than just investment management. Are they delivering the plan? Are they making you feel good? Are they giving you clarity? Are they letting you like live life with purpose and not worry about the dollars and cents? So I think there's a lot more to it than just investments. Although obviously it's important.
2: And if the advisor didn't set expectations up front that you're going to have those periods where things aren't going to go well, then that's their fault for making bad expectations. And in fact, sometimes that is the advisor's fault. But obviously we know that it's easier to set those expectations. Sometimes people just, it doesn't register with them until they actually go through it. 100%
1: 100% correct. Absolutely. Love it.
0: All right. Tony, this is great. As always, not much controversy this time, but we'll take it. We like it that way. Thank you for coming <laughs> on today.
1: I don't got the energy to perform some debates on Twitter, <laughs> but hey, it was so much fun. Thanks for having me. These are some great questions. Always love them coming on the show. Happy holidays and all that nonsense to you too. I look forward to being back in 2022.
0: Thank you, Tony.
2: Thanks again to Tony. Thanks to invest cloud and advice in. thanks to listeners for your questions remember animal spirits pod gmail.com we'll see you next time